the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come now before you and ask that your spirit would be here among us. Lord, help me to preach well. Help me to speak rightly of your word. Help us to love your word. Help us to delight in your law. Father, be with us. Encourage us in our faith. Convict us of our sin. Strengthen us to live holy lives unto you through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. We come now to one of the more uh, potentially more contentious. There we go. Contentious and confusing passages of 1 Peter and, and arguably the New Testament. Peter, in his second letter, mentions the Apostle Paul and Paul's letters and says in 2 Peter 3, 16, that there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Well, it certainly takes one to know one because this passage is quite a doozy. But with the help of the Spirit, we're going to dive into it and seek to understand it and be encouraged, convicted, and instructed by it. Before we begin, one word about the hard things of Scripture, and that is that this shouldn't surprise us or concern us. God is an infinite, holy God. He is incomprehensible to us fully. We can't grasp him entirely because he's infinite and we are finite. He's smarter than us, cleverer than us. And this is his word. Is it any wonder then that there are scriptures that cause us to have to think hard and deeply about things? But thankfully, God makes many things easy to understand. Our denomination's confession of faith, the Westminster Confession, says of the scripture's complexity, that all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear to all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in due use of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. And certainly that's the case here. The most important things are clear as day. One of the most precious verses in all of Scripture to me sits at the top of our passage this morning. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. What a precious promise of Christ's love and purpose. And that's clear. While we might, might, may disagree on the proper interpretation of the verses that come after this, it's a good example of how the clear gospel unites all those who are Christ's. None of us would disagree or deny that verse and in that promise, we rejoice. My theme this morning is that Christ is with us in the Spirit and sealed to us in the sacraments. And so as we look at this passage, I have two points. It was going to be a three-point sermon, but I got to um, about 30 minutes of sermon with two points. And I was like, do we want to go long? And Kate said, no, we do not want to go long. Make it a two-point sermon. So thank her for reining me in. Two points this morning. Firstly, the spirits in prison and the sign of baptism. Spirits in prison and the sign of baptism. Firstly, let's consider the spirits in prison. 
Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. I mentioned this passage is potentially confusing and contentious, and this is where the confusing part really comes out. Um, This part can be a little hard to understand, so I'm going to boil it down a little bit. Peter says that Christ went in the spirit and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And these spirits are in prison because they did not obey God back in Noah's day while the ark was being prepared. What's going on here? Uh, Well, there's a few interpretations. I'm going to give you a few, and I'm going to tell you what I think makes the most sense. Um, One position some people hold is that this verse refers to the idea that Christ went to Sheol, the realm of the dead, before the final judgment, and proclaimed his victory to those spirits in this prison. Um, But my question to that is, well, why then focus on Noah? Why is it only these spirits that are singled out? Did the spirit of someone who died during Abraham's time not get to hear this proclamation? It seems odd that Peter would fixate on spirits from Noah's time in Sheol. Another position is that spirits usually, when the Bible speaks about spirits in the plural, usually refers to evil spirits. And this passage could be referring to the the demonic beings we read about in Genesis 6 who produced the Nephilim. Uh, But again, why them only? There are other interpretations, and all have their issues, and we won't spend a ton of time. You can research this on yourself, but I do want to tell you what I think this scripture tell, uh, teaches and explain why. I think the best way to understand this passage is to not forget that it's set in the context of an argument. We don't come to this verse in a vacuum. Peter's writing a letter, and this is a natural progression of thought from what came before into what will come after. For instance, if I were to say, give me five, that could Uh, have a lot of meanings. If I'm talking, you know, to Kate in the morning, it could be, I need to sleep for five more minutes. I'm talking to Luke, it could mean I want a high five. If I'm hungry at a a baseball game and talking to a hot dog vendor, it could mean I want five hot dogs. Our words take on different meaning depending on the context, and context is king. And so we need to remember what has come before. What's Peter going on about? And Peter's in the middle of talking about living holy lives in the midst of an unholy time. In particular, he's just finished talking about being ready to make a a defense to proclaim Christ to herald forth the good news to those around us, even though they are disobedient. Remember Peter's own testimony in history. We'll talk about this more, especially in chapter 5, but Peter regularly brings in references and allusions to conversations that Christ had with him and the other disciples. And this passage and the preceding passage clearly aligns with with and echoes a conversation Christ had with the disciples in Luke 12 8 through 12 where he says and I tell you everyone who acknowledges me before men the son of man will also acknowledge before the angels of God but the one who denies me before men will be not denied before the angels of God and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus told them that the Spirit would help them proclaim and acknowledge Christ, even though rulers and authorities of the time are set against them. And not just help, but in Matthew, the parallel passage, he says the Holy Spirit will speak through them. 
And don't forget the end of the passage, Peter goes on to reference Christ's supremacy over these rulers and authorities. I think what Peter's doing here is saying that Christ speaks through his people by his spirit. That as we proclaim the gospel, it's Christ speaking through us. And this is a clear, clearly a scriptural position. Paul mentions this many times. 2 Corinthians 5.20, he says, We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Or in 2 Corinthians 13.3, the, his uh, detractors, where he says, You seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. And Peter is reminding his readers that Christ was speaking through Noah, by Noah, to that wicked generation. Why he brings this up is a key question, we'll get to in a second, but there's one more issue with what I'm saying that I want to settle first. I think what he's doing here is saying that Christ went and he proclaimed back in Noah's day through Noah by the Spirit to these people. Why then does it sound like Christ went and proclaimed to these people after they died? Why does Peter call them spirits in prison? It makes it sound like they weren't spirits in prison when Noah was proclaiming to them. Why is he using that language? And I think what Peter's doing here is referencing these people as where they are now. Not necessarily where they were when Christ preached to them. That might be a little confusing, but this is a normal usage of language that we use all the time without issue. For instance, if I were to say that I taught the 11th graders at Westminster the Old Testament, your initial thought might be that I currently teach 11th graders Old Testament. That's not unfair understanding of my words, though it's wrong. If you start researching and studying to see if what I say is true, you'll quickly learn that we teach Old Testament to 9th graders and not 11th graders. <coughs> Am I a liar then or being unnecessarily confusing? No. The proper understanding is that what I'm saying is that I taught those who are currently 11th graders when they were 9th graders. The when they were 9th graders is implied, but it's fair and normal to refer to people by their current state when referencing past events. Another example, uh, a more obvious example maybe, is that if I were to say, you know, my mom changed my diapers. I hope none of you would think that I currently wear diapers. I know I'm almost 32, so I'm getting older. We're getting closer to that. But I hope you know that when I was a child, when I was a baby, is implied by that. We regularly reference people by their current state in, uh, with, uh, when we're speaking about past events. And so I think that's what Peter's doing. The spirits of the people who lived in Noah's days are currently in Sheol, the prison of the damned, awaiting the resurrection and final judgment when they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. And so it's appropriate to speak of them in that way, as where they are now. And so as we come to this verse, I think that's what pa Peter's doing. He's saying that Christ preached through Noah by the Spirit to the people of Noah's day who are now spirits in prison. And you can disagree with me if you want. Uh, you can hold that Christ went to taunt demonic spirits or he went to preach to spirits of the people of Noah's day, and that's fine. Uh, but I do think my interpretation is defensible and it makes sense, especially because, again, the key question is why is Peter bringing this up at all? What's the point? We can get kind of bogged down in all the, the controversy and the details and trying to figure it out um, and miss, you know, what's he doing? Why is he bringing this up? And what Peter is trying to do, I think, he's, he's comparing Noah's day to his reader's day and our day in order to encourage them and us. Think of how weak these Christians must have felt, all alone and small. The whole empire of Rome 
is against him with all its strength and power and legions. The, the Jews, the very ones who should have welcomed the Messiah with open arms, turned against him and now are turning against his people and delivering them up to the Romans to be killed. Families are being torn apart. Friends are turning on each other. It would have felt like they were all alone against the whole world. And where is the victory God had promised? And Peter says, don't grow weary in proclaiming Christ. Think back. Remember, in the days of Noah, Noah preached, though it was him against the world, and Christ preached through him, and God vindicated Noah. Christ was with him, preaching through him, and those people who mocked and rejected him are spirits in prison now. He had it even worse, and yet God prevailed. God will prevail now, too, through you. Christ will speak through you now. And those who reject the hope you have, those who persecute you and engage in wickedness, will receive the reward of their rebellion. I think this would have been a very encouraging thought and message for those early Christians. And certainly in our day, in our time, we can see the encouragement and benefit of such a message. When we're surrounded by wickedness and violence on all sides, when we can hardly turn on the TV or radio without hearing unending blasphemy or seeing sins celebrated and promoted, when it feels like even the basic moral teachings of Christianity are radically hated and disdained. Indeed, it can feel though as though our day at times has more in common with Noah's day than Peter's. But as the great hymn says, though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. Just as he ruled, ruled in Noah's day and the gospel was proclaimed by Christ and the Spirit through his people, just as he ruled in Peter's day, and the gospel was proclaimed by Christ and the Spirit through his people, so too today God rules, and the gospel is proclaimed by Christ and the Spirit through us. And those wicked people in Noah's day and Peter's day, in our day, cannot stop or stand in the way. Christ has set the foundation of his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He will win. We will win. We will pass through the floods and be brought safely to a world remade just like Noah and in that we can rejoice and be strengthened for that is the hope that is within us as Peter says earlier just a few verses earlier and so I think that's what Peter's doing here he's not talking about demons or Christ going to Sheol or anything like that I think what he's saying is look at Noah look at his time look at how God vindicated him how Christ preached through him and look at all he had to go up against in the midst of your own sufferings, in the midst of your own persecutions. Look at that and be encouraged by that. I think it's an encouragement for us as well. Peter compares his reader's situation to Noah's situation, encourages them, and then he turns to discuss the sign of baptism. The sign of baptism. Continuing with the theme of comparing Noah's situation with his readers and ours, Peter goes on to say in verse 21, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So Peter talks about the story of the flood and ark and says, hey, baptism and this story correspond. They go together. There's a similarity between them. We're meant to learn about baptism from the story of the flood in Noah's Ark, because baptism, he says, is a fulfillment of Noah's Ark. Which is part of the reason our confession states that baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling, because 
who was immersed in the flood. Noah and his family had water sprinkled upon them as the rain poured down, but who were the ones who were immersed? Well, it was the world who was immersed in the water. Immersion in water is almost always a symbol of judgment. The sinful world was immersed. Pharaoh and his host was immersed in the Red Sea. Even in Revelation, we see that the sea and those things rising up out of it are evil. And we hold, as a denomination, that immersion still counts as baptism. It's not invalid. But the right way to baptize is by sprinkling or pouring as Noah and his family experienced, as the Israelites experienced, as uh, Moses sprinkled the blood on them. And that's why as we do baptisms here, you'll see we sprinkle or pour. And Peter says, he draws this connection between the two and then goes on to say something that uh, might make us a little uncomfortable. Um, He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, uh, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism now saves you. This is a potentially uh, very controversial statement by Peter. This seems to strike against the rest of Scripture, that we are saved by faith and not by our works. And it creates a contentious point. And there's a few ways we can take this statement. Some take this verse and go, clearly baptism itself is necessary to salvation. That you must be baptized in order to be saved. After all, baptism saves you. Peter says it right there. Or even some go on to say that baptism automatically saves you. To be baptized is to be regenerated by the Spirit and saved. Some take this and recognize the difficulty with this statement uh, and try to minimize what's being said here by spiritualizing it, by toning it down a little. Uh, Baptism in this view is a mere testimony to one's belief, simply an outward sign of an inward faith and so peter can't be talking about physical baptism or eternal salvation something else has to be going on here but both of these paths are incorrect we know and peter knows that baptism doesn't cause salvation nor is it necessary to salvation but on the other hand peter is clearly talking about physical baptism he's just talked about noah a physical event with physical water and he goes on to say that baptism now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the flesh he's saying, yes, you get washed physically in baptism, but it's not the washing that saved you. He's clearly talking about physical baptism. So how do we make sense of his words here? Well, thankfully, he tells us. <laughs> he says, baptism now saves you because it is an appeal to God for a good conscience through Jesus Christ. Baptism is the sign given to the new covenant people to mark their entrance into the people of God. And the scriptures show that, show that there's a unbreakable relation between the sign and the thing signified by that sign. It's more than merely symbolic and yet not the cause itself. Too often we can be tempted to overreact to errors. We can see the errors of baptismal regeneration and go too far the other way. I'm reminded of the story of a father whose uh, very young son wanted to hold a butterfly in a park. And the father wanted to teach his son a lesson about how he can't always get what he wants, and we have to respect nature, and stuff doesn't always work out. And so he said, no, son, you can't touch it. It won't let you. It's too fast. And immediately the butterfly lands on the son's arm, and they're both amazed. And they stand there and look at it. It's so beautiful, and the butterfly takes off again. And again, his son says, again, again. And the father, once again, trying to dispense wisdom and be, you know, teach his son important things, says, no, son, it's not going to happen again. It's gone. And this time the butterfly lands on the son's chest. (laughs) In trying to teach good and true lessons, we can actually ignore at times or go against what God is trying to teach us. 
And the same thing can be true here. Peter says baptism saves you, and our reaction might be to try to mitigate this or fight against errors, and in doing so, miss the beauty of this statement and the truth behind it. What Peter is saying here is that the relation between baptism and saving faith in Christ is so strong that they can rightly be referred to together. The sign, baptism, and the thing uh, signified, union with Christ by faith, are linked such that while one can exist without the other, sure, they are rightly considered unified. That's what Peter says. Baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is placing our faith in Christ. Now, baptism is also being sprinkled or poured with water. It is both at the same time. Now, they can exist one without the other. People can have faith and not be baptized, and people can be baptized without faith. No one's denying that. But part of what our confession says is that um, grace and salvation are not so inseparably linked to it that no one can be regenerated or saved without it, or that baptism b- all baptized are undoubtedly regenerate. It also says that the efficacy of baptism isn't tied to the moment it's administered. That just because someone has faith and then is baptized later doesn't mean that that baptism doesn't save them. Kate and I were discussing this and trying to wrap our brains around it the other night, and uh, I was saying, well, think of Christ, right? Had you done any sins when Christ died for your sins in time? No. And yet he still died for your sins. And think of the Old Testament saints. They were truly, fully forgiven of their sins by the blood of Christ when as yet he had not died. And so the time of Christ's crucifixion doesn't negate the efficacy of it regardless of when it is applied. And the same is true of baptism. Though we may have faith before we're baptized or though we may be baptized without faith, it doesn't change the fact that it is still effective for God's people. And we see with Noah's Ark the same thing. We know that his son Ham entered into the ark and was baptized, so to speak, but would later go on to be cursed because of his rebellion and lack of faith. There are those who are baptized who don't truly have faith, and we see those who are saved without this sign in extreme circumstances, such as the thief on the cross. But rather, when one partakes of this sign in true faith, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Spirit such that it is true what Peter says, that baptism saves you. As Peter says in Acts 2, 38, when the people he was preaching to asked what they should do in light of hearing the Gospels, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And again, think of the comfort this would have been to Christians at this time. They have so many tangible, physical threats assailing them, not just people saying mean things about them, but beating them. They have hunger, lashes, and even death. We are human. We have a spiritual nature, yes, but we also have a physical nature as well. And these people were dealing with real physical repercussions for their faith. And Peter reminds them of a real physical proof of God's salvation and care for them, their baptism. They're called to remember that they were baptized, and in that baptism, God saved them from their sins by their faith in Christ a physical reality that is joined to that greater and truer spiritual reality. And again, think what encouragement this is to us in our day too. Every time we baptize a child or new believer, we are seeing God work, bringing them out of this condemned and dark world into his people, 
And while they, may, while they may not yet have faith, or their faith might not be true, we rejoice in God's promises that are seen in this sign. That all those of, who partake of this sacrament in faith, either real current faith or real future faith, truly receive the benefits of it, namely salvation. And it's a reminder to us all that just as we have, uh, that just as we have received our own baptism, God will finally and fully save us. For Christ has been sealed to us by the waters of baptism, and we have been sealed to him. We are his covenant people, and we received this covenant sign. And so as we think about baptism this morning, I want to challenge us all to remember our baptisms. For those who have not yet been baptized, I urge you, in the words of the Apostle Peter, to repent of your sins and be baptized for the remission of sins. Take your rightful place among God's covenant people that's been won for you by Christ. And for those who have been baptized, to paraphrase the larger catechism, I challenge us to seriously and thankfully consider the nature of baptism and the ends for which Christ instituted it. Be humbled for our falling short of the grace God gives us in baptism to draw strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized and to walk in brotherly love as those baptized into the same spirit, into the same body. <coughs> The main thrust of this passage in all its difficulties and potential controversies is that Christ is with us by the Spirit and sealed to us in the sacraments. And while you did, may disagree with my understanding of this passage, surely on that we can all agree. And surely that is the point that Peter's making here. He's seeking to encourage his readers and us that in the midst of a dark and difficult world, we have a Savior who is for us. And over even the highest officials in this world, as Peter closes this passage, he reminds his audience that Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. He reigns over all. And as we are joined to him by the Spirit through the sacraments, we are with him. Our lives are hidden with Christ and God. And we, when he appears, we too will appear with him in glory. And so in the midst of our everyday mundanity and our sorrows and our tears and our triumphs and our joys, let us look to our Lord overall and the encouragement he has given to us in his presence and sacraments to strengthen our hearts. Will you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, Lord, we confess that we are weak, that our minds are frail and fragile, small things. Lord, we cannot comprehend all the glory, all the beauty, all the wonder of your word. And so we ask for your spirit's help. Lord, help us to know you, to dive into your word, to study it, to meditate on it day and night. Lord, may we be like the Brians who study the scriptures <coughs> and are commended for it. Lord, help us now by your spirit. Help us uh, to be encouraged that you are with us, that as we live in the midst of this world, as we uh, feel kinship with Noah and Peter, as we look at the darkness of the world, we would know that you are with us that Christ speaks through us by the Spirit as we proclaim the gospel. That we would know that you are with us, that Christ has been sealed to us in baptism, uh, Lord, that you have saved us in baptism <coughs> as we appeal to you for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Lord, we pray and ask that you would make these things real and really a source of strength for us. Lord, you are our strength and our God. We ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.